Good morning. Welcome to Rivermont today and I invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the descent of David from the pinnacle of his reign into the bowels of sin. He indulged his sexual appetite. He was perceived himself to be invincible after his military successes. He was filled with confidence in all of his abilities to solve his problems. Chapter 11 was all about David. What David did, what David's plan of action was. And chapter 12 turns the corner to see the action of another. Chapter 12 is about the action of God. This is a familiar passage to us when we've often heard taught and preached as a model for repentance. What it looks like to turn to the Lord after our sin. And that certainly is an application of this text. David's honest and his straightforward admission of his sin, making no excuses as a model for confession. After all, confession is agreeing with God as to what our condition truly is. But what I would like for us to look at today is not what David did in response, but rather, what did God do to pursue David? What did it look like for God to come after his wandering child and call him back to relationship? What does God do for you and for me to pursue us and call us to relationship? Second Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and as it grew up with him and with his children, he used to eat of this, it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Down to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see the wonderful ways that you pursue us as your children when we wander from you. We thank you that you do not leave us to wander. But you call us back. Help us to hear your calling voice today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
a friend of mine told me a story about how he disciplined his son, and he was maybe a little bit more harsh than Ron's mom was to him. This uh, friend of mine had an obstinate 12-year-old boy, and he chose a plan, and please don't hear this as an endorsement of his plan. It's just here for illustrative purposes, okay? Got it? As I tell it to you? This 12-year-old boy, as many 12-year-olds want to do, wanted to stretch his wings of independence a little bit. And so, to assert himself, he ostentatiously placed on the door of his bedroom a very large keep-out sign. And if you knew this dad, you would know that was a very bad idea. I'm not sure why this boy felt the need to close himself off from his father. Maybe he didn't want his father's prying eyes to see what he was doing. But the father devised a plan. Instead of a simple battle over the keep out sign, this dad chose a more get to the point tactic. The dad simply removed the door. He didn't take off the sign. He took the entire door off of the hinges and then he told his son this, there is nowhere in my house where I am unable to go. There's nowhere in my house that I'm unable to go. And this dad reported to me that after a few days, the point had been making and the door went back up. You know, everything worked out. Now, you might not approve of this dad's parenting technique, but God used something very similar with David here. David had retreated to what he thought was a secret place where all of his actions were veiled from sight and nobody knew what he had done. And he conceived this plan of adultery and betrayal and murder in order to pursue the object of his affection, Bathsheba, and ultimately his own self-interest. God came to David today in our text into what amounts a removing of the door of David's secrecy. And the Lord proclaimed to his rebellious child, there is nowhere in my kingdom where I am unable to go. And furthermore, there is no place where David could go where God couldn't reach to save him. It was this act of confrontation and an act of love where God welcomed back his child who had wandered into danger. How does the Lord call us back when we have wandered into danger? Well, if you were here last week, you saw that chapter 11 had set the context of the illusion of control where it repeated again and again and again, David sent, David sent, David sent. And here in verse 1 of chapter 12, we see God assert His control. The Lord sent, same word, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the world became different. How does God call us back into relationship? The first thing we see here is that God convicts. God convicts us of our sin. Now, in our culture, we may not like to think of conviction all that much because we don't like to feel guilty. And we have to acknowledge at the outset that there are at least two types of guilt. There's false guilt that can weigh on us when we really haven't sinned. I sometimes feel it when I've not met someone's expectations. And yet I feel a sense of guilt, a sense of failure that can come. And that's not what the Bible calls guilt. I'm talking about real guilt today when we've sinned, when we've broken God's commands and there's an unrelenting sense of what I have done is wrong, but I might want to suppress it. I might want to hide it. I might want to just kind of keep it away in the corner for just a little bit. 
And sometimes the Lord confronts our guilt by sending someone to speak His Word to us in a very straightforward manner. Other times, the Lord uses techniques that get around our defenses, get around our self-protective resistance so that we're enabled to hear the truth. And that's the tactic the Lord took with David. It was about a year before the Lord sent Nathan to confront David with this genius story of a man with a huge flock of sheep, and yet he stole this poor man's only lamb to serve a guest who had come to visit. This poor man had raised his his only lamb in his home. He loved her. He treated this little lamb like she was his daughter, verse 3 says. And there's a subtle charge there in the way that Nathan told this story. For in Hebrew, daughter is bat or bath. This little bath was surely taken like another bath, a bath Sheba. The Lord was beginning to prick David's conscience about what he had done. And when David heard that story of this rich man unjustly taking this poor man's bath, he came unglued. And he charged this man, he said, this man deserves to die, in verse 5. And this man deserves to restore that theft fourfold. But here David's fury is probably not the right order. If he, was, if he died, he's not going to restore the, restore the thing he had taken fourfold, right? He was coming unglued in his fury. And David had no pity for this man who had done such a thing to take something that didn't belong to him. David was beginning to accuse himself. For he had done exactly the same thing by taking what didn't belong to him. And before he knew it, the Lord had shown his light of holiness into David's dark deed and he could no longer hide it. It was then in verse 7 that Nathan announced, You are the man. And that keep out sign that David had put over his life was taken down as the Lord removed the door that David had put up to keep God away. And it was a gift of grace. It was a gift of pursuing grace that God came after His child. God wandered. God God convicted His child as He had wandered down this dark road of danger and pain. And friends, what we learn here is that when we are running away, the Spirit calls His children back. And He's not going to let us persist without that weight of His hand upon us, convicting us of our sin. Do you feel it? Do you feel any weight of God's conviction upon you today? If you are His child and you've wandered into a willful sin, you will feel God's hand of conviction. And it's not something to cast off. It's not something to ignore. It's not something that we should seek to silence in our lives. But rather, conviction is evidence that our faithful Father loves us too much to allow us to continue to run away from Him. God does that spade work in in our hearts to convict us. And when we hear like David, you are the man. When we hear God's voice of guilty pronounced upon us, also hear the strong call back to relationship. Through repentance. As God convicts us, He calls us with an invitation to return to Christ, not an invitation to rejection. God's conviction comes to us as an invitation to health, not of casting us aside in shame. And yet so often... 
we close our eyes and our hearts because being exposed feels like death to proud people like us. I wonder if God is calling to you and convicting you right now. Where might God's heavy hand be pressing down upon you? Where might God be calling you to repent and in response turn back to Him in His calling of grace? The Lord pursues His children through conviction. But the Lord also pursues His children through charging us with what we have done wrong. Sometimes the charge can feel furious, can it? Have you ever witnessed anybody's fury, that kind of fly-off-the-handle kind of fury? We see that sometimes. Have you ever witnessed or been part of someone who's deliberate and measured and intense in their anger? Someone who is like a sit-down son, we need to have a talk kind of anger. I thought about telling this story on myself here when my dad... I had to give this kind of fury toward me when I was growing up. But I thought better of it. I I couldn't think of anything that wouldn't embarrass me too much from all the boneheaded things that I did as a teenager. And all the times my dad had to say, Son, sit down. We need to have a talk. What we see here is that David incurred God's fury. And we can't escape it in our text. Beginning in verse 7, God through Nathan was a forceful prosecutor with charge after charge being leveled against him in rising intensity. And David had no occasion to stop the charges and defend himself. In verse 7, God charges him, I anointed you and I delivered you and I gave these things to you. Perhaps with each one of these things, Nathan's voice was was being raised with, with more volume. And then in verse 9, he asked, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? What a piercing question. But David didn't have any time to answer because the the charges continued with specificity to David's sin, sin that he thought he had kept in secret. Nathan now brought it into the light. He said, you took, you killed, you despised the Lord. And God pronounced judgment on David. And all this time, he was struck dumb with the reality of the deeds that the Lord confronted him with. What was there left for David to say? God had convicted him and now the charge was forcefully put to him. And so he simply responded in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Full stop. No bargaining. No excuses, no yes, Lord, but if you knew what was going on in my life, then you would, no yes, buts, I have sinned against the Lord. And it was because David had seen and felt God's fury leveled against him. What you and I have to realize is that we are in the same position. We have been judged guilty for our sin, and by God's holy judgment, we deserve death. There is a fury of God directed towards sin. And friends, we have been placed in His crosshairs. And if you would have been there in the court when all of this was exposed, this would be the place where you would, have be, th- you would be thinking, whoa, what's going to happen now? Because in the back of good Israelites' mind would have been this verse from Leviticus chapter 20. 
If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. In Israel's theocracy, David, the king, had just admitted to a capital offense. What's going to happen now? What is God's fury going to do to David? What is God's fury going to do to his kingdom now that his king has done this deed and deserves death? And as this is exposed, we see not God's, only God's heart of anger, but we learn a very, very important principle. That in the heart of God, judgment and mercy go together. We learn about his grace here in this text. God pursues His children through convicting us of our sin. God pursues us through charging us with our very specific guilt. And God also pursues us by extending demerited favor. It's His grace. Grace is a word that we use a lot in churchy circles. But it's so hard to define. Sometimes we think of grace as unmerited favor. Like we've received a gift that we didn't deserve. But I want to suggest to you today, that's not quite the biblical meaning of grace. We see what the true full meaning of grace is. It's pictured for us here in this verse, the next half of verse 13, where Nathan replied, The Lord has put away your sin. You are not going to die. You see, grace, rather, is God's demerited favor. And what I mean by that is we receive favor, we receive blessing when we deserve just the opposite. That's grace. David was charged with the sentence of death and he received the opposite of what he deserved. That's what grace is. So often we think of it as if we're in a neutral position where God gives us his love and God gives us his mercy when we really don't deserve his attention. But that's not what grace is. We do deserve his attention. We deserve His condemnation, we deserve His wrath, and we deserve to die. But God instead gives us love and mercy. That's grace. We receive the opposite of what we deserve. That's what the Bible calls grace. It is a demerited favor. And it's supposed to engender a response from our hearts. Because it's miraculous. Do you see it? God's law says David and Bathsheba were both proposed to be put to death. God's law charged them with judgment. And yet in a miracle of miracles, God commutes the sentence. God says they will not die. It's as if the law says you must die, but the Lord steps in and He shouts, No, not these. They will not die. These are My children. That's grace. We deserve to be put to death. We deserve to bear our judgment for our sin. But God blesses us and gives us favor instead. That is what the Bible calls grace. And yet, friends, so often in church, as we do every single week, we confess our sin and then we receive the assurance of pardon because of the blood of Christ and we are liable to miss the miracle. We treat God's grace like it's just some job that He does. We do our part. We confess our sin and He does His part. He forgives us of sin. Oh, ho-hum, well, how exciting. Could it be that we have lost the shocking miracle 
of God's grace given to sinners who deserve to die? What an outrage that verse 13 says, God Himself has put away our guilt. God leveled the charge and God takes it away. It is shocking. It's a miracle. Our guilt is removed by God's own hand. And friends, when we hear that miracle of grace, we hear the pardon of God, but we also hear God Himself stepping forward to remove our guilt. Himself, He says, it's their problem, but I'm going to take care of it. That's what grace is. But how? How could... How could that happen? How could God just let their guilt go? Simply forgiving a heinous sin and letting the guilty go violates even our own limited sense of justice. We don't do that in our justice system, our flawed justice system. If you're guilty, you're supposed to pay the punishment. So how can God, a perfect and holy God, offer forgiveness to guilty parties when it's clear to everyone that we deserve death? Through verse 13. The Lord has put away your sin. You are not going to die. Maybe a better translation of that first part of the Lord has put away your sin is the Lord has passed by or the Lord has passed over your sin. You see, the Lord did remove our sin. He's taken it away, but it hasn't just vanished. Perfect judgment demands payment. And the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to what we see enacted here. The Lord passed by David's guilt because there was a substitute who would bear David's guilt. The Lord passed over David's sin and judged the guilt of David's sin in a substitute, in the Messiah who was to come. And we know Him as the Lord Jesus. David's sin and by faith our sin has been nailed to the cross. All of our sin together with God's wrath has been nailed to the cross as Jesus was placed there as our substitute. The Lord has passed over our sin in order to punish His own Son for my guilt and your guilt. That is grace. You and I deserved to be condemned to death, but Jesus stood in our place. That is grace. And it was all done by the decision of God, the hand of God, the will of God, all for His glory. We deserve judgment. But Jesus has taken it on Himself so that in exchange we receive His life. That's grace. I love looking at ancient Christian symbols. Celtic crosses and stained glass windows and architecture of churches that are supposed to communicate uh, theological ideas. And one of my favorite images from the ancient church is the pelican. Have any of you ever seen a pelican on a crest or uh, someplace in a window in a church? Some churches have pulpits that have pelicans carved into the pulpit. Maybe you wonder why. It's not just because the carver was from Louisiana. There's a theological reason to have a pelican on the pulpit. Although science has long corrected this, in medieval Europe, the pelican was believed to go to extreme measures to care for her young during times of famine. It was believed then that when there was no food and no water, a mother pelican would take her beak and pluck her breast so that blood would pour out and her babies would be nourished. She wounded herself in order to give life to her children. 
And thus the pelican became an image of God's life-giving grace. Christ was wounded by the Father on the cross. And by His wounds and ultimately His death, life is given to His children, to you and to me. It was by God's own very action that our sin is passed by, that our sin is judged in the Lord Jesus, and it is in His wounding, in His suffering, in His death, that we are given life. It's the miracle of demerited favor. You deserve punishment, but God gives you His favor. God gives His blessing. That's grace. And He uses His grace to call you and me back into fellowship with Him when we've wandered down the path of destruction. Because grace is more than just a word. It's a life conviction. What do you believe is God's governing posture toward you right now? How does He view you? Is is He still furious with you? Do you believe that that God can't stand you because of the filth of your sin? Is that the way you believe He looks at you? No, it's not true. You have been given God's demerited favor. When God blows the door off of my sin and your sin, perhaps you suspect that He's going to punish you. He's he's out to shame you. He wants to pay you back. He's, He's there to get His pound of flesh. But no... God blows the door off of our sin to free us from the prison of our sin. To free us from wandering down those pathways of destruction. He blows the doors off of our sin so that we are called back into life-giving relationship with Him. Through repentance, we feel the sweetness of His favor once more. The Spirit of God convicts us so that the Spirit can free us to live for Him By faith, we know a God who pursues sinful children like us. He pursues us with His strong voice, calling us back when we are wandering in the depth of our sin. And He woos us with a heart of grace, a heart of mercy, a heart of pardon that invites us to freedom that we could never dare dream of having. Friend, if the Lord has removed the door of your secret sin, thank Him. Thank Him because He pursues His children back into gracious and blessed and fruitful relationship. He pursues us through conviction. He pursues us through charging us with our very clear sin. And He pursues us by giving us His demerited favor all that we might have life in Him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that You have not turned away from us. How easy it would be to look at people like us who do the things that we do, who say the things that we say, who hurt the people we hurt, who think the things that we think about you and one another. It would be so easy for you just to throw up your hands, turn aside and give up on us. But you haven't. You have given us a costly grace to call us back into relationship because of your giving, loving, blessing heart. 
And so we pray, Jesus, that as perhaps today we see ourselves in a new light, that the conviction that has come into our hearts is not to be turned aside, not to be ignored, but to be embraced. Because by this conviction, you're taking a step toward us to renew relationship. And so we pray, Father, that we would be people who hear the sweet song of your grace and be brought back into your fellowship through repentance and faith. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.